0: So what I want to look at tonight, we've been working our way through this passage and and um, I want to backtrack a little bit into verse 13 and 14 and really kind of settle in on verse 15. Um, and then if we have time, we'll throw 16 in for good measure, but that's about as far as we're going to be able to go tonight. Uh, but again, I want to look at, at verse 15. Um, this is... Um, this is a hard passage to translate. For example, in verse 15, there are no verbs in the Greek. A verb is what? An action word. There are some that are put in in our English translation, but if um if you will notice that some of them are in italics, some of the words are in italics when you find words In most of your translations, when you find words that are in italics, they are words that are supplied by the translator to make the sentence more readable and often more understandable. So Paul is asking the question um, about Israel's stumbling. And he said, did they stumble for the purpose of falling. That's all the way back in verse 11. So I'm going back further than I advertised. And I, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday. They, they did not stumble so that they would fall. Because of course Paul says in verse 11, far from it. Uh, but by their wrongdoing, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And we, we, again, we unpack that um, on Sunday. The Gentiles were not an afterthought of God then. And, and I've, I've heard sermons where, particularly when they're preaching on the triumphal entry. And some view the triumphal entry as the day that the Messiah presented himself to the nation of Israel and he was what? He was basically rejected. Although on that particular day, although the leaders rejected the Messiah, the common people were shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David being a messianic title. So, um, so they, they, there's a, a lot of speculation that at that day that they were for, that the Messiah was formally rejected by the nation of Israel, and therefore God said, now what am I going to do? And so he had to turn to the Gentiles, um, which we can go back, and I, I didn't throw them in there, but there are, there are particularly in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, the end of the giving of the second law, the second covenant, actually, with the younger generation, that the Lord is prophesying that he's going to give... Um, He's going to give the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul understands that the covenant that God made with Abraham, Genesis twelve, fifteen, and 17, that in that it was understood by Paul that God is uh, talking about how the scriptures are preaching the gospel and saying that the Gentiles will be saved. And, and that, that was how he understood that. That's out of the book of Galatians where uh, Galatians talks about uh, that covenant, that uh, blessing, I will bless you, and uh, in you will will all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth are whom? They're Gentiles. So it's, um, this was not an afterthought. So therefore, the question was, why did they stumble? They did not stumble so that they would fall. That's what Paul is bringing out here. So there's, I'm already, there's already tension here in what I have just told you and what we are just reading. Um, They did not stumble so they would fall, but because of their wrongdoing, salvation comes to the Gentiles so that they would be jealous. And if I were a Jew and I had rejected the Messiah, and then I watch all these Gentiles, and I'll think, think very Jewish here for a moment. Gentiles, excuse me, Jews particularly at that time thought Gentiles were good for one thing and one thing only. Kindling, exactly. They were good for the, to keep the fires of hell nice and hot. And for those people to receive Jesus, who was a Jew, who claimed to be the Messiah, also he claimed to be God, um, because he... Is God, but and He is the Messiah, but uh, it it would get under their skin or their yarmulkes, however you want to put it, and um, and so that that was the thinking. Uh, That's what Paul is is bringing out here and talking about another attribute of God, as I mentioned on Sunday. God's creative method of furthering the gospel to all peoples including Israel who has rejected their Messiah and so Paul says well I'm I'm speaking to you as Gentiles or who are Gentiles and therefore uh, because he knew that he was an apostle to the Gentiles and he says I magnify my ministry in other words I want to go out and I want to see more Gentiles get saved, magnifying my ministry, so that more Jews could possibly get saved because of the jealousy that he's looking to work in their hearts. So he has a motive because, again, as we looked at Sunday, we go back to Romans 9. He had a very, very strong and committed heart to his countrymen, Israel, and said, I would have wish that I would be accursed if they would be saved. So, that's the context that we are looking at. Um, and because he even says it in verse 14, if somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. I want to get as many Gentiles saved as possible because if I do that, somehow I'm hoping that more Gentile or Jews will get jealous and then get saved. It's a pretty good motive for me. <laughs> you know, so... Um, Then he starts to talk about, for if their rejection, or in the New King James, it says in verse 15, uh, for if their being cast away is being reconciled of the world. So who's being cast away here? The Jews. If their being cast away is is the reconciling of the world, who are whom? Gentiles. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, so this is a loaded question. All right, it's a loaded question. Now, I'm going to try to read to you a transliteration from the Greek of in English... Not going to read to you the Greek, I couldn't pronounce it well anyway, but I want to read to you a, a a a a translation or a transliteration as it appears in the Greek. It's a little different. I'm going to read it to you for their rejection, the reconciling of the world, what acceptance but life from the dead? Notice the word the" is not there, and notice. Some of the verbs are not there because they were not there in the Greek. Some commentators speculate, that's a nice way to put it, that Paul purposely wrote this because he's going to cause us to wrestle with it some. And because of the grammar that is used, uh, referring to this word, the word is actually uh, one word, which is apobole, uh, which is in the New King James, is translated being cast away. Remember, being is what? It's a verb to be. It's a verb. It's not in the original Greek. And and the word cast away, I'll, I'll explain it to you a little bit more in a minute, but in the New American Standard, it's translated rejection the esv in verse 15 where it says you know i'm going to call on you so you got to get ready because you have an esv it says for if they're what i can't remember what it says in the esv okay rejection all right which is actually a um uh a good translation uh, cast away is not a bad translation but it it, it it brings a little bit different type of context. I'll explain in a second. Um, now, the, this word rejection, it, essentially, it, I think we all understand what that means. Um, but it's it's only used. This particular word is re- translated castaway or rejection is only used one more time in the New Testament, and it refers to. Have, losing, having, or experiencing a loss. And in the context, it's in the book of Acts 27, 22. we won't take the time to turn there, but Paul is talking about the ship that is lost. Now, it's, so this idea of castaway, is English, right? It's kind of a nautical term when someone loses the ship they're on and they get shipwrecked and they're on some kind of an island. That's what's going on. That's where the translators are going with, with this particular word. So, but that's why I like the word rejection better. So, if that wasn't difficult enough, this is where it gets even tougher. Okay. So, interrupt me if you need to. I'll ask if you get what I'm saying when I'm finished, but you can interrupt me. But the grammar here. For this word rejection is is um, in what is called the genitive case in the Greek. In the genitive, often there are two different ways to understand what the word is saying. It's either an objective case or which is... Basically, what, what's something that's objective? something that's common, something that is fair, something that is, uh, that is not the person's opinion, or it is a subjective case, which when I say you're being very subjective, that means you're, you're basically stressing your own opinion. Okay, So that, it can be translated either way. In the Greek. Now, what I'm going to tell you, too, I got from Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews are Christian Jews, okay? So, um, in the objective case, it would refer to the Jews being the object of the rejection. I'll read it to you again. For if their rejection, in other words, if this is the objective case, it's saying if God rejected them. That would be considered objective genitive. Everybody with me so far? Any questions? Any answers? That is how it's normally translated, by the way. And that's why I went to really quick to, Sermons I've heard about the triumphal entry is that God rejects them because they rejected him. All right. There's some truth to that. All right. We, we see this with Pharaoh where Pharaoh what? He did what? He hardened his heart. Therefore, what did God do? God hardened his heart. But it wasn't until Pharaoh hardened his heart a few times then God finally hardened his heart for him. Basically saying if this is what you want, this is what you get. So, if it is subjective genitive, it would be translated for if their rejection, in parentheses, of the gospel. In other words, they are the ones doing the rejection here that's a minority view okay you got you got to remember that too that's a minority view so you could look at this verse at least that this first part of the verse and say is god rejecting israel or is israel rejecting god or is it both remember i told you that in jewish hermeneutics, Jewish interpretation of Scripture. There's four valid interpretations. We're going to get into that a little bit more tonight as well as we work our way through this verse. Now you see why I'm only going to sit on one verse tonight. Have I lost anybody besides me? Okay, so there's, there's two ways to interpret this. Now, Let's look at some of the arguments real quick. Did God reject Israel? That would be the objective genitive. What does it say in Romans 11, verse 1, and Romans 11, verse 2? Anybody want to read it for us just for fun? 1 and 2. One and two. That'll work. Yeah, that'll work. Thanks, Jeff. So, that word "castaway" in the New King James, which is in verse one and verse two of chapter eleven. Same English word, same English phrase, different Greek word. I think the concept is the same, though. I did some I did some digging on this. Remember, I just told you that the word translated "castaway" or or um, being castaway in out of the New King James in verse 15 is only seen one more time in the, whole, in, the, in the New Testament. So it's a different Greek word, similar root, but not fully similar. But we see here that God has not cast them away. In verse 11, again, we read that already. I say then I'm going to read it to you out of the New King James. Had they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. So, and then in verse 28 and 29. says so concerning the gospel, they, which is in italics, by the way, but it's a reference to Israel. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they, again in italics, are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God irrevocable. So, remember when, when, what was it, two weeks ago when we first started going through this particular chapter and I said, do you notice that there's a lot of contradiction going on? Not only within the chapter, but uh, compared to some of the latter chapters that we looked at. You guys remember that? So, what, what what we're bumping up against is... They stumbled, but not so that they would fall. Depending on how. It says, uh, it says beyond recovery, fall beyond Where? Right after we're, we're working with two different translations, so you're going to have to give me a verse yeah, number. Uh, it says, they so as to fall okay. Remember when, yes, remember earlier on Sunday when we talked about about how they harden their hearts? And I said we would touch on that. I'm not going to, but I'll I'll just throw this out. Same word is used at times in the scripture, in the gospels where where the narrative is talking about the disciples of Jesus who did what? Harden their hearts. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a permanent condition. So, um, God has not cast them away, verse 1 and 2. Their their falling away is not permanent, verse 11. The gifts and callings are irrevocable, verse 28, 29. Um, What's interesting about verse 17 through 24 And I I use the term acceptors and rejectors. Okay, I'm making up words, sort of. But if you read through verse 17 through 24 of chapter 11, what's it talking about? Natural branches that were cut off, wild olive branches, so natural, excuse me, cultivated. Okay, I'm back. Cultivated branches that were cut off, wild branches that were grafted in, and it does use the term, I believe, natural or the cultivated branches that can be regrafted. But it's based on, if you read that text, it's based on whether someone accepts or rejects the gospel message. Belief or unbelief is the terms it uses. Incidentally, there's a, there's a warning in there for the Gentiles. That we need to take heed to. That um, the human branches who reject the Messiah are cut off, whether they're Jew or Gentile. If they had been either part of the natural cultivated tree or they were grafted in. So this, this, this makes the idea of eternal security a little bit um, thinner on the ice. What were you going to say? Yeah, you should not, branch. Okay. Because I, I wouldn't consider that the olive branch is Israel. I would believe that, um, not the branch, the olive tree. I don't think it's Israel. I think it's the people of God, which includes Israel. Exactly. Okay. And what did I say about Israel on, on Sunday? Exodus 4 says they are what? The firstborn. So obviously God started with Israel first. All right. So, um Let's get back here. For if their rejection proves to be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but from the dead? So, Paul likes this theme, reconciliation. I don't know if you've noticed that in reading some of Paul's other letters. Um, But Paul uses the term reconciliation uh, to interpret Christ's saving work that he does. We see it in chapter 5. Romans chapter five verses ten and eleven. 2 Corinthians five eighteen through twenty. I can give them the rest of them to you if someone's writing them down. I better slow down if someone's writing them down. Ephesians two sixteen. Ephesians two sixteen and Colossians twenty through twenty two. It's interesting because the word reconciliation refers to what? It does, but uh, the reconciliation refers to what? the re- the restoral of a relationship. God brings him back to Himself. I think I think what he what is going on here? Did the Gentiles have a relationship with? With God prior to this? No. Although some did. But as a whole they did not. I think what Paul is doing. Is taking the concept of. Humanity. The concept of the fall. Because when the fall took place. In the book of Genesis. Man then needed to be humanity. needed to be what? Reconciled. So. I think that's part of why you have that in here. Uh Paul's whole ministry was a ministry of reconciliation. Second Second Corinthians chapter five verse eighteen and nineteen. I, I read it to you or I mentioned it, but I'm gonna go ahead and read it to you. Second Corinthians five eighteen and nineteen. If I can get there quickly enough. says, now all things are, God, are of God. Let me read again. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So they're there in Second Corinthians, particularly in verse 19, where it says God, uh, God was in Christ reconciling who? The world to himself. So um, it's this regathering and this gathering, if you will, of, of God gathering for himself a people. Um, the, the interesting thing is, is what, what, what reconciliation is being spoken about here. Well, it, it, it's not real clear. I mean, I threw out some ideas already, but it, uh, it, uh, I didn't get it from the text. I got it from the word reconciliation. You know, and it, it, but it doesn't, you know, another reconciliation that, that Paul talks about is the book of, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 18, the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile as one people of God. Remember when we, remember so, was that so long ago? It was long ago when we were in Ephesians 2. Was last month? No, a couple of years ago, I guess. I don't know, we've been in Romans for about a year. Anyway, um, but the, this this idea of reconciling um, Gentile and Jew into one people. and And so, But nonetheless, the work of reconciliation happened because of Jesus' work on the cross. And so I I think there can also be more than one meaning that Paul is referring to. Again, I find this this passage very vague, to be honest with you. And, which I'll talk about in just a second. But, But nonetheless... Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Um, instead of trying to quote it and misquoting, and I'll just read it. And then, well, I'll just pick up a few verses. I don't want to read the whole passage. Verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 2, "...for he himself is our peace," referring to Jesus, "...who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace." and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. Reconciling um, or creating in himself one new man from two. So I, I think that's what the tree, that the olive tree, that we're not going to look at tonight, but I think that's part of what the tree symbolizes the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is creating one new man into two. So there's Jew, and there's Gentiles. But according to what Paul is telling the Ephesians, there is now one new man that's been created. Um, Paul told the Corinthians that that uh, in Christ we are what? A new creation. Behold, all things have... have uh, passed away behold all things have become new or as the new king james likes to say anew but uh and so there there's this radical shift in in how god views humanity um so but it's talking about here for if their rejection whether it be the jews rejected the gospel or whether it be God rejected them, or some kind of combination of both that is probably way beyond our pay grade to really slice and dice. It says, if their rejection proves to be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's a wonderful question. So there, there's, there's so much there, uh, so much theology there, uh, and so many types in the Bible where, where you have these stories of, of, of the raising from the dead. And so here you have this, this people group, if you will, who Ephesians chapter 2, they were dead. It's referring to those who were without Christ, by the way, not just Israel, they were dead in their trespasses and sin, and, but he has made them alive. And, and so um, this word, before I get into this life from death, and I want to talk about that in a little bit, but this word acceptance, um, it means taking to, or a better way to say it is drawing to oneself. Drawing to oneself. Um, how do we draw someone to yourself? Sometimes we call them. Hey, come here. Right? Sometimes we go to them. And sometimes there's, it's it's so funny, our, our dog is, She's, you know, whenever she wants something, like, I think it's probably eight times out of ten, she's in my lap going like, um, you know. So she's coming to me, but she's got that ingrained, right, I guess. Although when she wants comfort, she goes to mama. But anyway. Um, but, but it's this idea that you draw someone to yourself and... Um, And what was once dead has been made alive. And this incredible miracle of a group of people that were dead but now made alive, which there are, there's a lot of different interpretations of what this means and when it's going to happen. I'll give you three of them. How's that? All right. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning on our, our Messianic Jewish brothers on this. Okay. But I, I just thought what he wrote about this was so good. Um, I'll have to tell you guys, what is the name of that commentary? The, the uh, Something about the Jewish New Testament. David Stern. Um, S-T-E-R-N. He's a Messianic Jew. I think he was living in Jerusalem. I don't know that he is now. Um, it's, a, it's a great commentary. The book quality itself is horrible because it's a small book and it's got a real thick binding and it has a tendency to want to fall apart. But anyway, nonetheless, it's really a good commentary. Um, but when he was talking about this idea of life from the death, uh, and, of course, his, his slant is very Jewish. Obviously, you know, because he, he's a Messianic Jew. Um, but he says there's three different ways to to interpret this, um, and they may all three be true. And uh, he said the first is the v- three different meanings, okay? First one is a meaning that is rather vague or vagueness. In other words, what does it mean to be vague? It's not real clear. Kind of like this whole verse is not real Clear, okay? So, um, but this vagueness could refer to the individual salvation and the reconciliation with God for Jews. So, it, it, it's, it's something that is happening, and it's symbolic of a, that when every Jew gets saved, it's symbolic of God harvesting uh, the Jews, and, and finally seeing this come to its full age when? When Jesus returns and we enter into the messianic age. Which Jesus referred to as the age to come. Okay. That's one possibility for what this is talking about. A real vague interpretation referring to the individual. I like that one, but I like the others as well. All right. All three could work, possibly work. Second of all, this could be just metaphoric. Symbolism. All right? Now, if a person is dead spiritually, who can bring them to life? Spiritually dead. Only God. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But it's really, it's Jesus who, can, who does the work. We see that in John chapter 1. Um, I, I'll misquote it. So I'll read it. John 1 verses 4 and 5. It says, um, in him was life and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, so in Christ is the light and life. We see that again in John eight twelve. And in John fourteen six, I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah, he who comes to me, what shall what never die. So you you have this incredible promise from the Messiah, since we're being Jews tonight, uh, who who claims these things. He he is, and so this could be a metaphor for the work that Jesus does in our lives. Now, second of all, this is where it's going to get, I know some of you are going to disagree with me on this, but that's okay. It's also considered a Jewish perspective on the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And do you guys remember what a midrash is? The Jewish midrash? When a Jewish midrash is when you take a room and you put in 10 Jews, you end up with 12 different opinions, right? In other words, it's the discussion that they will have around their interpretation of a particular passage. There are times I actually get into some really fun discussions with some of you folks out there after the message is over on Sundays, and that's kind of a midrash. Um, and the, the idea is that this is possibly, how time? We don't have a whole lot of time, but um, this is possibly Paul's contribution to a midrash of the book of Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, what's significant about Ezekiel 37? Valley of Dry Bones? Does that strike a a chord with any of you? Ezekiel 37, verse 1, if you want to turn there, go for it. I'll read slow. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Good answer, huh? Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So uh, he prophesies as he was commanded. Uh, And this very thing happened right in front of him. Indeed, I looked and the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, in verse 8 if you're there, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And so he said to me, prophesy to the breath. That word breath is the Hebrew word ruach, R-U-A-C-H. In the Septuagint, it's translated Numa, P-N-E-M-U, which is the same word that is translated spirit. Ruach in the Old Testament, Hebrew. It means uh, spirit. It could also mean breath or wind. The same thing for the word numa in the New Testament. It can mean spirit, breath, or wind. Anyway, um, prophesy to the ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the ruach, the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and, and breath came upon them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. Um, due to time, I'm not going to fully unpeel this. There are those who believe that this passage has been fulfilled, In 1948, when Israel returned to the land, I think if you carefully read through this passage, you will find that this is talking about them coming into the land and believing in their Messiah. So at very best, what took place in Israel could be, could be, maybe, but maybe not could be the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. I don't believe this prophecy has been fulfilled in its entirety, nor I don't think it will be fulfilled until the Messiah returns. That's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. Um, So it's very possible that what Paul is talking about in Romans 11, verse 15, with this life... uh, how does he, okay, life from the dead is it could very possibly be that he is reflecting on Ezekiel chapter 37 and seeing the future fulfillment of what will take place. Um, that's metaphor. So that, that was a long one, wasn't it? One more. Okay, the literal interpretation. There is a literal. So there is vague metaphor or symbolic and then literal. All right, and it it's referring to really the 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 completion of salvation um in 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 our at the time of the bodily resurrection as we who are in the grave will enter into the messianic age um, and to me, that makes a lot of sense what this is talking about so um but nonetheless. What will their acceptance, their calling alongside of their Messiah be but life from the dead? Which I, as, I, as I read this, I reflected earlier on the book of Romans where it says that God likes to call those things that are not as though they call those things that are not as though they are. And, and does it in the, here even, I believe, in the form of prophecy. And of course, Paul who has an incredible love for the Jews, for his countrymen of the flesh, can't wait to see this happen. Because he goes on, and I'm, I don't, well, I've got five minutes. Uh, he goes on and he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, or if the lump is holy, or excuse me, if the first piece is holy, the lump is holy also. And if the root is holy, then the branches are as well. I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack that because that segues into this next section that we're going into with this analogy, metaphor, symbolism of the olive tree, of those being torn, broken off, those being grafted in, those being regrafted. Um, and so, but he uses this idea of... Gosh, how much time? To... No. <laughs> okay, let me just try to do this for you. It's a reference to the 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 first fruit offering. That's what it is. So he's he's using an Old Testament analogy here. Where it says, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. We'll just take half the verse. How's that? I'm in verse 16 of Romans 11. Okay. So there are several references to the first fruit in the Old Testament. Actually, Jesus is referred to as the first fruit among what? Many brethren. All right. So you... uh, Exodus, several passages. Leviticus, several passages. It makes it easier. But Numbers 15, we'll go there. Numbers 15 refers to the first fruit offering. In Numbers 15, right around verse 20, 21, I'm just curious. How many of you ever thought about bringing more than one Bible during some of these studies? Okay. It might make, I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's why I've got four tonight. But Numbers 15, verse 20. Let me back up to 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. And you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering of the threshing floor so shall you offer it up, and on the first of your ground meal you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. What's it talking about? When they eat of the grain of the land, how are they going to eat of the grain of the land? After they have planted. In other words, after they have taken possession, and now they are cultivating. So they have grown the grain. They harvest the grain. They take it to the threshing floor. They grind it. And the first portion of the harvest goes to the Lord. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. That first portion was a heave offering. Now, uh, Clay, would you like to come up and demonstrate that for us? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I will demonstrate, I don't want to demonstrate it. The heave offering is is kind of interesting because it it simply um, uh, refers to the this, this offering that you give that you would take and you would kind of gesture it upward, offer it up to God. Um, we don't do that today and I don't think we need to begin. But anyway, a- and then it was given, really it was given to the priest and they would eat it. And so, um, but the a matter of fact, when, when, when they did thanksgiving offerings, this is just as an aside, Leviticus 7, when they did thanksgiving offerings, um, the right shoulder of the animal that was sacrificed on a thanksgiving offering was given to the priest. It was also known as the heave shoulder by the Jews. It was offered up, extended upward to God as this gesture of, of, of offering the very first of what you have as a means to say and to give thanks to God for the provision of the harvest. See, this is really rich. Um, because, okay. I see what you're getting at. Now, my understanding, as I read this passage in Numbers, is that as a reference to the individual or to the family, more specifically the family, um, particularly in a Thanksgiving offering, it would be one person making the offering. He would invite all his family and also friends in the thanksgiving offering and after the 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 uh the animal was put on the altar and sacrificed it basically it was barbecued and they went out and they ate it was a called a fellowship offering also so so yes i it was like individual families but remember there were more than just a few priests particularly as israel was further developed There were more than just a few priests that were serving in the temple. Which they would as well. Yeah. Which, I mean, there's all, you know, uh, there was all types of provisions that were done. You know, Uh, but there were. The whole Levi Levi clan. Right. Because they did not have their. Well, they rotated. They rotated, and, and there were more, uh, David set this up. I, d- I don't have the time to get into this, but they, they rotated their, the temple service, and that's what's interesting about Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He was on his rotation, and he got picked to offer the incense, and so it was just his time of his, uh, there's a word for it. I can't think of it offhand, but um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a means to provide for the priest. But it was a means of thanking God. I think this is what Paul is trying to draw out here in verse 16. It was a mean and I'm watching the clock. But it was a means for thanking God for the harvest. Remember in John chapter 4. Where Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well. And his disciples show up and they're like, what are you doing? Remember? They were not real happy that he's talking to this woman. And this woman goes into town and, he, and she, she's like the first evangelist of Samaria. And she gets all these people to come out and see Jesus. And, and Jesus says that the fields are white with the harvest. So this idea of the harvest in God's thinking is the harvesting of souls is what's that salvation yes Israel being the first fruit of this lump this big lump of dough referring to the entire harvest that will happen it's symbolic but still is, there's there's the spiritual reality here Israel is the entire is the first fruit of that of the dough or of the grain, and if they are holy, therefore the entire harvest is holy. What an indebtedness that really we do have to Israel when you think about that. They've been offered to God as life from the dead, and this, this harvest that will take place. And I I I'm out of time. And there are different views on the harvest. And how does that relate to the tree? Well, we'll look at that later. How's that? Any questions? Thanks for the five minutes, Tim. Let's pray.